Morning Liberty. Well, what is going on, all of our Liberty-loving friends? Welcome back to another fantastic episode of the Good Morning Liberty Podcast. I'm one of the hosts here, Charlie Chuck Thompson. And on today's episode, we got all kinds of things to go. Oh, Nate's here again. I, I know you guys can't believe this. All you guys watching live, you already knew this. But for the rest of you folks out there, it's this is day number, what is this? Four. four. Day, day four. No, day four. I'm risking my life risking to do your this life podcast. For the wonderful people that love this show, the Good Morning Liberty podcast, which is probably, I you know, I haven't compared the other numbers, but probably the fastest growing Liberty podcast out there. Yeah. So, uh, and, and it's worth risking your life for you know what's funny about saying you're the fastest growing of something now ben shapiro can say he is the largest and fastest growing conservative podcast in the nation and he can say that even faster than i just said you could say that he, he you can know, say it really fast yeah we could say it for a few days and this is something that people do with statistics all the time at one point in time in our podcast we had one listener and then the next day we had two and our growth grew by 100 percent within one single day and that day we were probably the fastest growing political podcast in the nation because i don't think any of them doubled their listenership that day at all that's just statistics right there yeah. percentages people play that game all the time so just something to think about completely random who cares charlie what's in the news we're up we're up like seven thousand percent or something like that i know since a date in the past yeah, since someday, <laughs> pick the lowest number and then pick the highest number yeah. and make the best case you can for whatever you want to make. Exactly. There you go. No, um, I just wanted to say welcome to everybody. It's a, another fantastic Thursday, uh, which sucks because, you know, the markets close after tomorrow and then there's no trading over the weekend. And so hump day is a bad day because it's, you're on the you're on the backside now of what the fun week is all about. Uh, most people are like, well, I can't wait for the weekend. Not I, says Nate and Charlie. Not I. <laughs> but uh, no, welcome to the Good Morning Liberty podcast, where we talk everything about life, liberty, and the pursuit of meaning. And uh, we talk about real shit here on this show. <laughs> all right? Yeah. This is where you get the real stuff at. And we got all kinds of cool stuff to talk about. But first, I wanted to let you guys know to please hit that subscribe button. It's just it says subscribe it's right, right there. there it's yeah. right there and on if you're on an iphone like most of you that's a purple button uh and if you're colorblind it says subscribe listen if you're listening and you have not hit subscribe here's your punishment we're not going to do anything else until you hit that button no we got to do the whole hey, show we're not gonna do anything no until they hit that button no we gotta do, do the it show. five four three do it hit the button Hit subscribe. Thank you. That is awesome that they hit that button. You are now part of the 92 percenters club, which is 92% of people who listen to this podcast do hit subscribe. Way to go. Way to go. That's a win right there. Now, I know you're not a dad, so you probably don't know this, but like <laughs> you reminded me of like Mickey Mouse house club or Mickey Mouse clubhouse. Yeah. Because like they'll ask questions to the kids in the living room, you know, at home. They'll ask him questions like how many you know, triangles are there and they'll pause for like five seconds on the show. And like, and then they'll go three, right. <laughs> <laughs> and Parker never says anything. Yeah. I'm like, Parker, answer the question. <laughs> He's waiting. The man's asking you questions. <laughs> answer him. Oh, how and many we, triangles are there on the screen right now? <laughs> <laughs> three, that's right. <laughs> okay, anyway. <laughs> so it's the same thing. It's like, uh, hit the subscribe button right now. 
Oh, thank you so much for hitting that button. <laughs> there you go. That's just what it reminded me of. That's, Funny, good stuff. You know, having kids is fun most of the time. Yeah. Other, other times you want to jump off the tallest building you can don't, find. Don't let him listen to this <laughs> no. someday. Don't let him come back and listen to this oh, he'll, episode. He'll understand one day when he has kids. Later in, <laughs> yeah. Later in his life, when he takes the 10,473 episode challenge, once he starts listening to the podcast, he'll find this episode and immediately have this deep-seated depression about his father <laughs> kick in and questions about his entire existence. Nah. But until that time, we're good. You know, ignorance is bliss. Let's go. <laughs> okay. Now we got a lot to talk about. You want to scan through what we're going to talk about real quick? Yeah. So, of course, everyone wants us to be like Sweden, except for when Sweden does things we disagree with. But we want to be like Sweden. So uh, that's what he named the episode today. Sweden tried personal responsibility, not a shutdown. And how did it work out for them? Well, of course, you know, it's terrible for what you're going to hear on mainstream news. Like, oh. You know, well, if everything was the worst case scenario, Sweden would be in bad shape because they tried this. <laughs> if everything was worst case. Like, like everything else. Yeah. We also have a very personal story of a gentleman who uh, ended up passing away after installing a new computer system at a hospital. And so that's kind of sad. Um, and then we're also going to be talking about the uh, the PPP. Yeah. The, the payment. or sorry. Paycheck, not payment. Paycheck Protection Program, that's PPP, that's Loan and Shake Shack. And if we have time to get to it, uh, this wonderful article out of Vice, which is just a, you guys know that that is the place to go to for your news. Mm -hmm. uh, it's titled, Where You're Out of Work Makes All the Difference in the World. Yeah, and we got to talk about unemployment. It's that can kind of couple with uh, Maurice asked if we had talked about the negative income or negative income tax, so basically UBI. And so we can, we'll sprinkle that into the conversation here. We've, we've talked about it a little bit before. Maurice, I'm a little disappointed you didn't know that, man. Come on. Number, I mean, you're, you're the number one listener. I see your ranking on the website, goodmorninglibertylisteners.com. You're, you're ranked number one all the time. Uh, anyway, we'll talk about the negative income tax and whether or not a UBI, negative income, any of that stuff is, is a good idea. Hint, not. Hence, it's not going to be, but we'll talk about why and whether or not it could be a benefit to our society in in lieu of the current system that and, we have. And I'm sure we'll have time to probably sprink, sprinkle in a specific tweet from Bernie Sanders, which you could probably argue about all of his tweets, but we got one. We got a dandy for you, man. Yeah. That's all I can say there, man. <laughs> So Damn, one of one hell of a dandies. Uh, take us through this first episode real quick. We're going to talk about Sweden. First episode? This take us through the first I article. We'd have to go back and listen. Yeah, that's a long time ago. We don't <laughs> have time for that. Take us through the first article. We're going to talk about Sweden and their top epidemiologists and the fact that they're flattening their curve all while not destroying their economy. Should you buy some Swedish currency, whatever the heck that is, I don't know. They might have a stronger currency overall. We'll have to check and see because they do not seem to be destroying their economy like all sorts of other countries are. Now, what's crazy is I sent this article to you last night, but you had already had it. Yeah. And it's all over the news. You guys can find this article from anywhere. However, I'm going to read you one from Fee uh, because they are fantastic. I would say, obviously, they're probably more biased in our direction because they are definitely a liberty-loving liberty organization who speaks truth about economics. So anyway, Sweden's top epi hang on epidemiologist. I didn't want to screw that up again. <laughs> Sweden's top epidemiologist 
COVID-19 infections flattening under policy of individual responsibility. <laughs> Who would have thought? Weird. <laughs> Weird. Individuals. Huh. We can't trust no one. Nope. But apparently Sweden can. So anyway, Sweden may be on to something. Bloomberg reports Sweden's unusual approach to fighting the coronavirus pandemic is starting to yield results, according to the country's top epidemiologist, Anders Teg- Tegnell. The architect behind Sweden's relatively relaxed response to COVID-19 told local media the latest figures on infection rates and fatalities indicate the situation is starting to stabilize. We're on a sort of plateau, Tegel Tegnell told Swedish news agency TT. TT, that's their news, that's the news agency for Sweden. If Tegnell's um characterization turns out to be true, it will be quite a vindication for Sweden, which has been widely denounced for bucking the trend among governments of imposing draconian shelter-at-home decrees that have crippled the world economy and thrown, million, thrown millions out of work. So Sweden took a different approach here, uh, much to the behest and degradation from every other major <laughs> government the in the chagrin. world. Yes. <laughs> while the fear, while fear of COVID-19 pandemic has driven the citizens of many countries around the world to be extremely trusting of their government's information, <laughs> predictions, advice, and edicts, the Swedish government flipped the script by placing its trust in its citizens. As a Bloomberg, Bloomberg report puts it, with emphasis added in the article, by the way, I didn't add any emphasis. The article did. <laughs> so <laughs> this whole thing is very interesting. So what did Sweden do? Well, they left at schools, gyms, cafes, bars, and restaurants open the madness. That's crazy. Throughout the spread of the pandemic. <laughs> Instead, the government has urged citizens to act responsibly and follow social distancing guidelines. What the hell have we been talking about on this show? It's crazy. We were Sweden before Sweden was Sweden in this situation. The Swedish people have lived up to that trust and have appreciated it. It's so weird. Like for the most part, if you allow people to just be free, oh, what happens then? You know, there's always going to be a few people that are, that are just, that don't get it. There's always, there's always that one guy that screws it up for the rest of other people that you have all these rules implemented over. But if the majority of people, you just trust them. So yet overall, Lovin's strategy has won the approval of Swedes and his personal popularity has soared. Nice. Quote, I have a very high confidence in the Swedish authorities that manage this. Volvo Cars CEO Hunken Samuelson. I'm not I'm not saying any of this right, by the way. <laughs> just go along with these. It's Swedish. Yeah, these people. Why why his name should just be Hack. There Hacken. you go. Hacken Samuel said in a phone interview, "It's a hard balance to strike, but I have full confidence in the measures that Sweden has taken." Volvo, which was forced to halt production across Europe and furlough about 20,000 Swedish employees, will resume production in its Swedish plants on Monday. Quote, our measures are all based on individuals taking responsibility, and that is also an important part of the Swedish model. Measures based on individual responsibility used to be part of the American model, too, <laughs> as codified in the Bill of Rights. Oh, who would have thought? Hmm. Yet we have developed a culture of re- reflexivity, reflexively giving up that responsibility and those rights whenever we get scared of terrorists, of economic hardships, of a virus. As the economic devastation from our latest collective panic attack mounts, we are seeing how counterproductive that cowering cowering posture can be. This is what I talked about yesterday on the show. Like we used to be the land of uh, the home of the brave, right? Now it's the home of the, the safe. Yep. Make us safe. Play us safe. 
Take oh. my rights. Take my rights, please. Yeah. Oh, you can take my rights. <laughs> Come on, just take them away from me. I just want to be safe. Please just let me be safe. Promise me I won't die and you can put me in a cage if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're going through right now. We don't really have to go all the way yeah. through this. The rest of this is uh, way more opinion and everything, but it's the same thing that we've been saying. You know, this, this whole idea, first off, number one, first off, the question really has to be, uh, does the government, can they take away all these rights from you? Can they even do them in the first place? So should this even be a conversation? Can they force you to not have your business open? Can they force you to not go to businesses or to go out in public or wherever you're going to go? Can they, can they actually do that? And the answer is really no. So the entire debate itself should be moot. It, re it really should. But since we're having the debate over what rights we're going to allow people to have in what circumstances, well, I guess we got to make whatever case we can for those ideas. And one thing I will say about Sweden, I was looking, listen, their numbers, not good as far as percentages go. It's, it's not good as far as the percentages go because they've actually got about 1,200 cases per million in their country. And they have a mortality rate on the coronavirus of about 12% also. So that's not good. Our cases per million so far is about 200 in the United States. So that's it's something to consider. No, we have they, 2,600 cases per million. Per Cases per million? Yeah. I was literally just on here. I must have looked at the wrong column. 2000 we have 148 deaths oh okay well yeah. that changes everything it changes everything that changes my entire world view now sweden down here they actually have 1600 cases per million 200 deaths per million i feel like they just updated this thing i don't know yeah that's so weird anyway okay well that so that kind of changes what i was saying which is that sweden's numbers were bad okay and actually, they're not even as bad as Italy. You want France? You want to look at their cases per million population? Okay, well then I guess I guess the point I was just going to make is it's actually reversed, and they're actually doing better in cases per million than we are. Now their population density is not very high at all. There's not a ton of people in Sweden. Not a lot of people there. But you've also got to consider one thing. And listen, I know you can't just remove. You can't just immediately remove a bad part of the statistics, but you realize what our numbers would look like if not for New York City, a, a place with a population density of about 10,000 people per kilometer squared in, in comparison to like Sweden, who has 30 people per kilometer squared. I don't know what their highest population city has in that city, but you got to understand New York is heavily, heavily weighing on our numbers. In fact, New York itself, of our 48,000 coronavirus deaths that we have, New York accounts for 21,000 of those. We put New Jersey together too because it's that whole metropolitan area. It's all area. the one same yeah. area. 26,000 people out of the 48,000 uh, are all from that same city, basically, in the, in the same city, the same area. They're all sharing the same subways and all that. So what's really interesting is if you consider that massive statistical outlier, which is something that you do in statistics, by the way, you plot all the numbers and you remove the top outlier and the bottom outlier, and you can keep removing the top and the bottom to kind of get to what your standard statistic 
would actually be what's the median what's the average what what is all that i don't know what the, that technical term is but you remove the deviations the most extreme outward deviations and what you get is the rest of the country aside from new york city connected to new jersey has not been doing all that terrible they've not been doing that terrible at all they they are at uh, over 1600 between New York and New Jersey per million, 1,600 just there. And then you take other places. Like, I mean, California is at 37 deaths per million. California, a lot more spread out, right? A whole lot more spread out. Illinois, 122 per million. Michigan, 283 per million. And then you spike up to New York and it's over 1,000 per million. So you have to consider whether or not uh, New York is itself an outlier because its population density is insane. I mean, the place is the size of a of a park, and it's got and it, and it's got ten million people on it. So it's it's a very small place, uh, for sure, with a lot of people there. But, well, and one thing they understand, like, look, everyone says, you know, of course, like Bernie and all them, they want to be like these Nordic countries, be like Sweden, you know, have universal health care and all this stuff. Sweden is a very capitalistic country, especially when it comes to business. In fact, they're probably if not the same, more capitalistic than we are when it comes to business practices. And what I think Sweden understood was is that while this virus is serious, same thing we've been saying, like, hey, this is probably serious. Take it seriously. However, there is a cost to economic fallout. And I think Sweden understood this. And so they said, hey, you should take this seriously, have some personal responsibility. And in fact, their numbers are skewed even more because they had this outbreak throughout uh, nursing homes and things like that. And they're trying to figure out how it got into nursing homes, but most of their deaths are actually nursing home deaths from the old people that got it as it carried out throughout nursing homes. They're trying to figure out how it got in there. More than likely a young kid visited his grandma um, and shouldn't have. But anyway, um, you know, this whole approach that we've been saying, like we ourselves took it seriously. Nate worked from home for, uh, what was it? Like two four, or three weeks, four, so. four weeks almost. Yeah, it was, it was a while. Yeah. And so we separated, uh, we were able to figure out, you know, the, I would say our show wasn't as good, but we still did what we could to accomplish our job uh, away from home uh, or from home, sorry, where we separated. We didn't go out and do anything. We haven't obviously gone out to eat or do anything like that. Cause you can't, uh, we've done the few grocery shopping trips that you can do, but for the most part, we've been washing our hands and using hand sanitizer and, taking personal responsibility. And we thought that we had a chance of having it since my girlfriend's an ER nurse and was exposed. Um, but luckily those tests came back negative. In fact, all the tests that we've taken come back negative. So not sure what the fevers were, were from, but uh, all the tests are negative. So it could have just been uh, some regular sickness that yeah. gave us a fever. Could have been bacterial. We don't know. There's, uh, you know, there's other diseases out there, Yeah. by the way, all kinds <laughs> of, you're susceptible to all kinds of things. But I think Sweden understood this point that we've been making the entire time, which is there is a there is a cost benefit analysis to everything. You can't go all in to stop one thing without something else falling apart. Especially when you have a system like Sweden does where you pay for everything almost for everyone. They know that they cannot destroy their economy. They would collapse. They right. promised everyone everything. So they cannot destroy their economy. They, they need the tax money they from the need, gyms and the cafes and the exactly. bars and the restaurants. They need people's income taxes to come in with their 60% tax rates. Yeah. They need the income taxes if they're going to keep supplying health care to people. 
so that they can't remove all of the income tax and then still supply all the health care to everyone. Yeah. It's pretty simple concept i'm gonna look and see how much it would cost the move to sweden i think they still have zoom over there maybe we can do something <laughs> through zoom it's just so crazy to see people like bernie and everyone talking about sweden and denmark and sweden and denmark and not now we uh, don't want to be like them now they're you know? terrible now. they're terrible absolutely terrible right now is that rain out there that is rain holy crap that's loud rain or hail one of the others man man that's loud yeah so you know you want to be like them when you agree and you don't when you don't agree that's similar to what we're doing right now by the way because we don't want to be like sweden except for in this case where they've allowed their economy to stay open yeah so that's we want to be like sweden in their economic their business policies because they have low taxation on businesses they realize i think sweden understands incentives uh, you know i think they really understand well, we want to be like them when it comes to individual responsibility that's what we talk about all the time exactly you know so it's just you have to consider that and also everyone can we please consider the fact i know we're going to cross the number that's obvious but we haven't reached the amount of people that normally die from the flu every year yet we still have not reached that number and the numbers are going to be slowing down a lot they're definitely going to be slowing down we're going into the summer this is going to slow and then it's going to pop back up at the end of the year. I'm betting we'll probably double your standard flu. But remember, we've known about the flu for over 100 years and we've got a vaccine for it. We've got a lot of people in our population that are vaccinated for the flu. We've got medication like Tamiflu that you can take within a day of getting the flu and it can help you get over it. And we still have 50,000 people die from the flu every single year. So even if we double the flu's numbers with coronavirus, that's coronavirus pre-vaccine, pre-tama-corona, pre-anything like that that's going to prevent you or, or take it away once you do get it. And we're still looking at, we're still under the amount of people that die in a standard year from the flu. But everyone's right going to say, Nate, and I've heard this actually, that the only reason why we're under those numbers is because we are... We did have these stay-at-home orders, and we're we're flattening the curve. Yeah, because the social distancing worked. That's what they're going to say. That's what they are saying. The problem is the social distancing still projected two hundred thousand people dying. The models projected it with the social distancing social, measures. Yeah, and now now that people aren't dying, they're saying, well, that's because of social distancing. No, your social distancing projections called and said that 200,000 people would die at minimum. In fact, when the White House said 200,000, everyone was making fun of them for putting the number so low that the projections were so much higher than that, and they were just trying to sugarcoat their numbers. And now, that was with social distancing. Now, I'm, I'm just going to throw out there 100,000, 100, 110,000 people will die in 2020 from coronavirus trump said uh i think it was last week 50 to 60 thousand well we're at 50 number, right now was the number they were looking at yeah and that was with the newest data coming in and they were read as as every day they update the models as it, all the data comes in it depends on how they count it realize that the flu is counted from april to april that is how they count flu seasons so technically we are on a new year starting counts for the flu so be careful if you see flu comparisons at the end of the year and they're only starting for the current flu season, which started in April or at the beginning of May, however they actually start their calendar year for the flu. And then they're taking the entire number from 2020 for coronavirus. 
because that's something that they're going to try to do by the way they're not going to they're not going to take that into account so anyway hey how about some personal responsibility from sweden that's pretty cool well, i like look, it Nate, all i've got to say is in a truly free society <laughs> in a truly free society economic rights must be considered human rights this a tweet from bernie that's, sanders and in economic rights in a truly free society they have to be considered human rights yeah because there's nothing that says you are human like your economic rights exactly yeah so let's in take fact a, i can't even believe the, the founders didn't put it in the bill of rights <laughs> economic and rights you are guaranteed a livable wage well and, article 8 section 2 Let's take apart this idea real quick. Bernie's saying that economic rights are human rights. Bernie lies. What is an economic right? How do you, do I have economic rights? Yeah, what's the definition of that? Well, what I want to know is, do I have economic rights? And what does that mean? Does that mean that I have an economic right to your money? And if I have that economic right, then what are your economic rights? If you're a human being then how do you have economic rights and I have economic rights, but my right is to take something from you? What does that say about what your economic rights are? You just take it back. You just take it back. <laughs> I just You take it from me, I take it from you, we just take from each yeah, other. Yeah, exactly. And we, Everybody take everything. We average it down until it hits zero, and that's yeah. basically what happens. But no, this is a self- The only, the only economic right you have is the right to participate. <laughs> yeah. That's it. In whatever way you see fit without harming your actual human rights. Well, and what I would argue is that your economic rights would be to keep the product of your labor. That sounds like an economic right to me. Yeah. Like what you work and spend your limited time on earth doing and receive in value return from other people is an economic right to you to be able to keep that. And your economic right cannot be to take that from other people because then they don't have, have any economic rights. So it's a, it's a self-defeating idea immediately. Any kind of rights that remove rights from other people. And we would say your, your liberty ends where someone else's begins. You can't have the liberty to remove liberty from other people. Yeah. That's, that's you, what liberty is. You can't start a business where... Your whole business venture is just to steal from other people. Yeah. You know, like, oh, what a great business. We'll just siphon money from everybody. Well, what you that's the government. That is. Yeah, that is that's the government. The government's They're business. incorporated, by the, the way. The biggest business in the world, and by the way, is the United States government. So this this whole idea is just insane to me. And what it actually means is that you get to choose who has rights and who does not. Because in in deciding that I have economic rights which means other people have to work to provide things to me without me supplying any value to them whatsoever. Since you're saying that, you're saying you get to decide who has economic rights at any given time and who actually has no economic rights at all. You know, you played a good clip from Ayn Rand earlier. That kind of I could play that again. It kind of talks a little bit about this. Now, she's obviously talking a little bit more about uh, altruism and how... There is you can't actually be altruistic at all because that requires um, it requires other people to accept your altruism whenever they have to be able to give altruism. Like the cycle never works. It's what I talked about last week. You know, energy can't 
uh, create energy in and of itself. You know, I can't, um, I can't have a spinning wheel that's going to generate enough energy to keep the wheel spinning. Yeah. Unless Eventually. you're in space. Right. Right. Unless you're in space. That's the only way it happens. Uh, because there are other forces in play that eventually, it, otherwise you would never need gas. You know, your alternator in your car would just keep everything going. Well, people have always asked, well, why don't they just make a car that when everything's spinning, it recharges the batteries itself? Well, they do do that some, but they can't do it to the point that they create more energy than they are burning to spin. Right. They can't, they can't do that. You have to burn energy to get the wheel to spin and if you're building up energy, you can never build up more energy than what that is actually burning. It will always average down just like a society that is only taking money from the rich and never making any new things on top of that. And what Ayn Rand is talking about is when it comes to altruism, which is being charitable, doing things for other people, I think that's a good thing to do, but not under... Selflessness. Yeah, selflessness, not under force. And what she's saying is that really in a free market, that's the only place that true altruism can exist. Because if you're inside of a communist or socialist society and it is required that you do this, then that's not altruism. It's, it's just your duty. It's your, it's your obligation. And you will actually will build up hatred and fear and resentment towards those people because other people will only be seen as people who are people who can take rights from you, who can take things from you, who you owe things to, because you can't care. You can't be selfless, which by the way, that means the other people can't be selfless. That means the entire society is only dependent on other people to do things for them all the time. Cause you can't do things for yourself. You only have to wait for other people to do things for you, but you can only do things for other people. It obviously doesn't work. So this altruistic society just does not exist. And we've seen people implement an altruistic society several times. It doesn't work. Yeah, it ends. It, in it doesn't lots. work at all. Forced, it ends in the thing we're against forced, the most. Forced altruism is in itself not actually altruism. Altruism would be doing that without force. That's that's what altruistic people would do. And so this, we'll play this. You know, she's a little, her accent is difficult uh, to understand. This is about a minute from her talking real quick. And, uh, you just, man, you just can't well, beat this, a good old idea from, from Ayn Rand. And this whole idea, it, it all wraps into the same idea. It's the same with love. You know, like forced love isn't love at all because love has to be a free choice. It can't be forced. You know, if I force you to do nice things for me, well, are you doing nice things for me because you want to or because you're forced to? Yeah. It's like, like, are you being selfless because you want to be selfless or are you forced to be altruistic. I've always thought like being in a controlling relationship, like I would never want to control someone into and and control them into the person that I want them to be because then they're not actually the person that I want them to be. They're only that person because I'm forcing them to be that person. And if I'm not allowing, you know, if you're going to be really, really uh, protective or controlling and don't talk to other men. Don't talk to other people. You can't do, don't do this. You can't do this. I'm going to get mad. Why would you want to be with someone who requires your control to be the person that you want to be with? Why, why not just be with the person who you wouldn't have to control? Yeah. That, that would be a lot better. So really someone who you have to control is, is a relationship you shouldn't be in. You shouldn't have to control someone. And these principles, they govern reality. It's just, they yeah. all work 
and and of and aside each other. It's a it's human nature. Yeah. Uh, so let's play this real quick. It's a minute from her. In fact, makes benevolence among men impossible because if you have to regard all other men as mortgage holders on your life, if their claims have to supersede any interest of your own then you can feel nothing but fear and hatred toward other men since they are a threat to your own existence. And if you do not satisfy their claims, you have to take moral blame for it. That makes any kind of authentic benevolence among men impossible. It entails other contradictions. There is no reason why you should consider the benefit of others as a value if you do not consider your own benefit a value. Altruism demands that you regard everybody as a value except yourself. And remember that this applies to every human being. Therefore, according to an altruist, no human being has any right to any value nor to any happiness of his own. He only has the right and duty to serve others. Therefore, altruism does regard men as sacrificial animals, as object of sacrifice for others. That is not a theory of benevolence for men. Okay, so she's always good. That was just a just a minute long, but man, yeah, a lot of so information good. there. So good. If you guys have time, just search Ayn Rand on YouTube, and and you you'll be there all day, and you'll you'll be so much better for it afterwards. It's worth the time, I promise. So mind mind blowing. Yeah. So this this idea coming from Bernie that you got economic rights being human rights. And you're deciding that humans have some rights over others, you know, all just like just like Animal Farm. If you've never read Animal Farm by George Orwell, I highly recommend it. Really good. I cannot believe it was required reading at my elementary school required reading. But yes, I can because my mom required that you read it. That's why it was required reading in my English class. Because she required that you read Animal Farm. Thank you, Mom. She's a pretty good mom. For having us read Animal Farm. And that is a story of really communism. It's really a story of communism. It's a story of the, the, the lowest on the totem pole rising up and destroying the top. And what you end up finding out is that they're still just the same. They end up just having the same control. And actually, they end up being worse. Because now you're in this society where no one really has any rights and they're in complete control. And what was written on the wall was uh, it was something like all animals or all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. Yeah. And and that was the I don't know if I botched that or not, but it's something like that. All animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. And that is exactly what Bernie Sanders said in this tweet without tweeting that. That's exactly what he said. Economic rights must be considered human rights, but that means that you can remove economic rights from other humans. That is what that means. So it's a... You got it right, by the way. All animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you could have assumed that I got it right. You didn't really have to check. (laughs) What are you going to do? For the listeners. What a waste of time that was, checking to see if I was right. Come on. This is in the novel Animal Farm by George Orwell. Now, novel Animal Farm, is that like novel coronavirus? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I got the novel Animal Farm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sick with the novel Animal Farm. <laughs> <laughs> Check out that book, guys. It is really yeah. good. Um, they banned it from the school, by the way, about three years after I uh, was out of that grade. 
um, they banned it from being a required reading in the school. I, my was, mom was very upset about it. Was my I think my class might have been the last one to might have been. It? Did you have to read it? Yeah, yeah. It yeah. was it was a few years after I left, and you were two, two classes years, below yeah. me. So I think you still got it. You might have been the last class that had to read Animal Farm, and then no one else had to read that just terrible propaganda anymore after that <laughs> no one had to that's the public school system for you folks i think this kind of leads into uh some more economic discussion before we get to the story um if, if you want to skip down to the vice article and talk about ubi negative income yeah, yeah we can do we're that talking about economic rights and all know. those things i think this it is from a few days in. ago that I, this is from like a week ago <laughs> let me see oh. yeah i just hadn't deleted it yet well, well, we can get in. We can just go into the negative income tax yeah. discussion then. Well, Maurice so, asked, asked about that, so I think that'd be a good thing to talk about. Well, in essence, that's what economic rights are. Yeah, it's a it's a negative income tax. Like you deserve a certain level of income from other people, and that's exactly what it is. Now, Milton Friedman did argue for a negative income tax or a universal basic income, a UBI, basically, um, as a replacement. For the current welfare system. Yeah. And um, I actually agree with that, that it would be a step in the right direction because you would get rid of a lot of the, um, you get rid of, rid of a lot of the agencies, a lot of the bureaucracy, bureaucracy, and all of that stuff would be getting, you would just get rid of all of it. And instead of having to sign up for SNAP and sign up for housing and all these different things and go to this agency and that agency and make sure all your benefits are in line uh, if you need them then you would just get a negative income tax. Well, I think what's and important- You would get the money uh, and then you you could buy whatever you wanted. We have a negative income tax right now, extremely inefficient. Based on your income and what you earn, you receive a certain amount of benefits back. Or if you pay in taxes and it was you had a certain income, you receive that back. And in effect- they do create uh, what is slightly a UBI. And I mean, of course, if you have no income, you get more welfare and everything on top of that. We have a negative income tax. That's what the welfare system is. And so what Milton Friedman was saying was that just doing a straight up negative income tax, say guaranteeing that everyone earned at least uh, I think the common figure now is about twenty to twenty-five thousand, guaranteeing that everyone at least had twenty-five thousand every single year. What he was arguing was that just doing that specifically, a UBI, an Andrew Yang UBI, would be better than what we have right now because it would be way more efficient. You would get to choose how you would spend that money that you receive. There wouldn't be things for only spending money on you know the WIC stuff or the your SNAP benefits and and for housing and for everything. You would just give out the money and and people would decide how to spend it. And there should be no arguments about specific programs and about all this specific stuff afterwards. It's not going to be clouded and massive levels of bureaucracy, that it would be a much more efficient system. Milton Friedman was absolutely not arguing that as a society uh, in a no taxation and no welfare system that we needed to at least have a negative income tax or UBI. That's not what he was arguing. He was arguing that in favor of the system we have right now, that that would be the easiest way to step towards that system. And just a quick note, when Andrew Yang came out with this idea, people were quoting Milton Friedman and him talking about the negative income tax. Milton Friedman specifically said that he did not agree with a negative income tax that was paid for by a VAT, by a value-added tax. 
specific quotes about a value-added tax that it did not need to be paid for with that. So any quote using Milton Friedman for Andrew Yang's UBI idea is immediately canceled out because Andrew Yang's UBI idea is reliant on a VAT tax. So they're, they're non-existent together whatsoever. And the reason he said that was because a VAT tax is the easiest way to cloud, to hide taxation from the people. They'll see a VAT tax and in increases in consumer prices because it's increases in your, your wholesale, wholesale prices and your basically a sales tax that's going to be added. And you won't see that because it will just be reflected in the base cost of the items. Unless the business decides to list that yeah, in unless your they itemized receipt. In some kind of way. But if like you're the deal airlines do, you know, when you buy an airline ticket, you've got the $5 surcharge on there for the government imposed 9-11 fees. It tells you right there yeah. when you buy the ticket. But if you deal with a VAT tax, you're talking about the company, uh, the people who uh, bought the plastic for this computer right here, the people who sold the wiring, the people who sold the circuit board and the, uh, you know, Intel processor, all of those people, when you are Apple and you decide to put together this computer right here, there is a VAT tax added on top of each one of those things. So it's not just a sales tax when you sit when it's you sell the computer. The, it's more in the wholesale market. It's in the wholesale market in every piece that comes yeah. into that, and that's hidden from you, so you don't see it. You see it in a more expensive computer. I'm saying that's unless, all you see. I'm saying unless the computer company decides to say they in your itemized receipt yeah. list all of the value added tax that was added on. Yeah. Like, oh, look, this computer's for sale for $399. It's going to cost you $1,200 <laughs> because, look, we got a $300 charge for this. And, you know, the problem is it becomes really hard to trace because not only that, well, the company who made the plastic, what materials and what goods did they have to get together to actually make the plastic? How many times was there a VAT tax added on all of those materials to come into their little plastic factory when they made the pieces here to then sell it to Apple with the VAT tax on that? So Apple would have to trace what the the base cost of each one of these things would be and what the actual VAT all the way through the line of when it was just a little baby plastic hadn't even been uh, harvested yet out of the ground. <laughs> <laughs> they, that's true tr actually because plastic's made out of oil I mean, listen guys <laughs> you want to talk about things that aren't uh, there's not a single thing on this planet that did not come from this planet yeah. just so you know uh so whatever you want whatever you want to call the plastic it all came out of the ground there's not nothing here didn't come from earth we everything here came from the earth in some kind of yeah. way possible it is all natural actually Everything is natural. That's a whole other conversation because we don't have anything that was not made from something that eventually at one point in time came from Earth yeah. in any kind of way. So that's a st stupid argument that we don't need to talk about at yeah. all. That's just me being a libertarian douchebag when I say stuff. But the, the problem with the UBI, and Charlie, you can tell me, what would a business have to do? Uh, let's say if I don't do anything, Charlie, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to work. I'm not going to do any work anymore. And I'm going to receive $20,000 a year in a UBI. Say 24, because you'll make 2000 a month. Say 24 in a UBI from the government, from our, from our negative income tax. And that's what I'm going to receive. How much would a business, just to get someone to leave their house and work, have to offer someone? To actually get them to do the cost-benefit analysis of I never have to do anything and I receive 24000 versus I'm going to work 40 hours a week and I'll have to be receiving what? at least double. At least, I, I mean, 30, I would say 35000 
and you could start getting people off the couch. Now, what that well, means? Well, actually, you, I, don't, I don't think you would because you have to take into consideration mm-hmm. the prices of everything are going to have to go, going to yeah. go way up, and then the taxation off of that income as yeah. well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you have to, you if you do the if you do a correct CBA, I think it would have to be close to double yeah. before it would make sense to where you would actually be making more. True. Considering all the taxation and the cost of goods increasing and all of that. And now that is for the lowest level position in the country. Whatever job that is, someone is weighing between a guaranteed 24 for doing nothing or what they'd have to get paid to leave their house. And now your lowest paid position in the country has to receive that amount of money to get someone to come work there. And then everything else has to step up percentage-wise, just like it is right now for each job. Everything else has to step up from that now being the basis point of what you have to pay someone, your minimum to get someone to leave their house. And we deal with that right now. The way that they structured the uh, the bailout, if you were making uh, $800 a week, and, and that's what you were making, you're making more money right now than you were before when you were working yeah. because they did a $600 per week unemployment and you get half your salary uh, from unemployment anyway. So you get 400 plus the 600 from the government. So now you're making a thousand instead of when you were making 800. And this is already a problem that we're running into is people not wanting to go back to work. You think that's not behind the overall national sentiment that we don't need to go back to work. We've got a massive portion of the country who's making more money right now than they ever have, or they're getting paid to not do anything from their business. Who's being really nice and still paying them. Why would you want to argue that we reopen the economy? I think unemployment's even higher than just 50%, isn't it? I don't, well, it's 30. Oh, 50%. I think you get 50. I don't know. I I can't remember. I thought you got more. I thought it was, I don't remember like 60 or 70% of your salary or something like that. If you file for unemployment. Yeah. I guess depending on how long you've been there or something like that, I don't know the exact statistics on that, but I thought you got maybe a little more. I don't know. I could be wrong. So let's say it's half. Yeah. But if you say it's half, if it's more than that, then the point is even more stronger solid. Uh, So even saying that it's half, you're, you could still be making more money if you're someone who was making 800 a week and you're getting that 600 a week in unemployment. And so first off the idea that they're not take that the government is failing and not taking care of people. um, I, I don't know if they really are uh, failing at that, it will, it'll, it'll be 10 years before we get the proper economic data on this, just so everyone knows. <laughs> so we'll be speculating until then. But yeah, Marie said, um, Milton Friedman was arguing for a negative income tax as a replacement for the system we have right now. And in that light, I would agree that it would be better than what we have right now. It would just be more efficient. It's a step in that direction. Yeah. And it, there's other problems, though, because if it's more perceived like a $24,000 a year salary that you're receiving versus I have to jump through all these hoops and ladders to get all these little portions of welfare and SNAP and all this, maybe there's more of an incentive to get people to just decide that they're going to work and trying to, instead of trying to jump through all the hoops. I don't know. But you could also have an, an incentive, I think, instead of having designated money for certain things that the government deems you can only spend that money on. Maybe you do have a few people that decide to be frugal with that and save and invest some of it to maybe start their own business or something. Like exactly. That. And you, you yeah. end up 
seeing that that money is yours and you make a decision whether to save or not in which uh with snap you're not going to make that decision you're going to spend I, all I of ha- your monthly have to snap spend benefits this, you right. know? yeah but whereas if they're just giving you the money maybe you'll invest some of or you it. trade maybe it for cocaine because it's hell of a drug yeah maybe that's what, what you're doing guys right. the big, biggest problem is coke prices are going to be way on the rise <laughs> after this so buy your coke now everyone before they institute <laughs> oh a ubi God. coke zero sponsors the podcast oh, okay. what i'm oh, talking yeah, about right yeah, here yeah, this yeah. coke that's zero right. that i have yeah. yeah yeah so charlie can we split up this story and you tell me some of this story this is a job that you used to have by the way yeah you used to go to hospitals and set up computer systems i used to do this i was uh just like chad yeah uh, chad actually... cap cap capul cap i think this is a uh, little bit of a sad story. You guys stick with me here for a little bit. This is coming from NBC, I believe. Uh, the headline, he traveled to a hospital to set up its new computer system. Three weeks later, he died there. Chad Copules. I would just say Chad. Chad. Yeah. yeah. Chad's family believes he would have survived had he been tested for coronavirus sooner. The nurses at the Wisconsin now, hospital. Uh, uh, hold on. What do you do if you test positive for coronavirus? Do they start you on some kind of medication immediately? No. Okay. No. What do they do to treat coronavirus? For the mo- for most people, they send home. Okay. And they say, hey, drink plenty of so, fluids, get rest. Okay. So go ahead and read. Sorry. Start with the first line again. Chad's family believes he would have survived had he been tested for coronavirus sooner. Okay. Yeah. Just checking. Yeah. yeah. Probably. It's the test that saves people. Mm. No, what happens is, is like, if you are tested positive, if you test positive for coronavirus, the treatment right now is for the most part, you go home. Even that stockbroker, like one of the most famous guys on uh, the New York Stock Exchange who had it. I watched him, his interview. His entire recovery was at home and he said it was miserable. He felt like he was dying, but it never got to the point where he actually couldn't breathe. Like if you get to the point where you can't breathe, then you go to the hospital and they put you on a ventilator. Yeah. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, it really all depends on your situation for most, most people that are dying have other underlying conditions, by the way. And most of them have heart disease or diabetes. This guy had hypertension and high blood pressure. That's another one. Um, all right. So the nurses at the Wisconsin hospital where Chad died, were really hoping he would pull through so he could help them better understand the new computer system. He had traveled there to install just as he started feeling ill. I'm sure that that That's was a really hope. selfish reason to want was, someone to survive. <laughs> yeah, we don't want you to see your kids again, Chad. I really we, hope this guy survives so we can use this computer system. I just want to understand this new computer system. That's all. But the IT manager, who was 49 years old and whose only underlying condition was hypertension, high blood pressure, tested positive for coronavirus, and he was intubated a week after setting up the new system at St. Angie's Hospital. He died there two weeks after that. So sometimes... When intubated, by the way, that's, you're getting on a ventilator. So sometimes when you're intubated, it works, and sometimes it doesn't. It really all just depends on your body's capability of recovering. So Chad's family believes he would have survived had he been tested for coronavirus sooner. How? Based on what? Yeah. They intubated him a week like after he tested positive. If anything, the only benefit from breathe. testing sooner is that maybe he infected other people that he would not have. Right. But I, I I could be completely wrong on this. I just, I don't know if you test positive for coronavirus, what they're doing. Listen, my, uh, I should told you one, dang it. My, the, the very close family member of mine 
uh, very close. You know someone. Family member of mine just tested positive yesterday. So uh, I'll have to ask what medication you immediately get started on when you test positive. I don't know what it is. Uh, I, I'll, I'll have to ask. I'll send a text and see, but I don't think they're starting you on medicine immediately. Yeah. Unless it's the, unless your doctor does prescribe you the hydroxychloroquine and the, and a Z pack. Yeah. Which they can do. That's uh, it's their antiviral. Didn't they just start drugs. doing the hydroxychloroquine, chloroquine like for last the last week couple or the weeks week before? For the last couple of weeks, yeah. it's been a, a, it's been compassion. Okay, so it's not FDA approved that, you know, this is the way medical doctors work. By the way, it's like you they you have a certain uh, kinds of symptoms, and then uh, the statistical likelihood that your symptoms equal this uh, thing equals this treatment. Yeah. It's like doctors aren't thinking of new ways to save you. It's just like it's based on statistical history. Yeah. And they go to school to learn all this knowledge. Be like, okay, you have a sore throat and you're having trouble breathing and the chest x-ray looks like it's uh, like all the other ones real messed up. And you got these little spots here on this thing and this little spot here and this most of your lungs covered in fluid. Oh, oh, you've got coronavirus. And then they go, they go to their little uh, dictionary and they say, oh, what's the treatment for coronavirus? Or it's in their head because they've done it for a long time, whatever. And they're like, oh, yeah, most patients I've seen with this, we did this, this, and this, and it worked a lot of the time. So we're yeah. going to try that. And if it doesn't work, then they try something. That's why it's called a practice. It says here, recommended treatment is go home. Right. That's, exactly. That's what you get. And and this that's why it's called a practice. But this was on March 5th when this happened. They were not using hydroxychloroquine at that time. Oh, okay. That, that was not, that's like, at that time, everyone was saying that Trump was insane for mentioning it. Right. Still. So that I don't know what I, the family believes he would have survived, but believing that someone would have survived is not any type of medical or scientific basis whatsoever. I'm sorry to be not emotional about this. It just it yeah. isn't. All right. Continuing on. He also fell victim to another cruel trick of the virus. We should blame the virus for this one. <laughs> Starting to feel better right before turning for the worst. Now, it seems like, you know, Chad had a pretty good attitude here. He said hours after he was finally tested and found out he was positive, Chad wrote an email to his friends and family to fill them in, striking an encouraging tone. Quote, this was somewhat frightening, but I'm, but I am very low risk and not in mortal danger. He wrote in the email that his wife, Anne uh, Starkweather, she's got a different name. Um, anyway, Starkweather shared with NBC News, quote, I want to assure everyone that the primary symptoms have subsided and I am well on the road to recovery and expect to be back by this weekend in DC. He wrote on March 11th. Instead, Chad returned home in an urn. Jeez. Mm. That's sad. Harsh quote. I rode with his ashes in the car for 14 hours and said Chad's wife. She had traveled to Wisconsin to be with her sick husband, but ended up also testing positive for coronavirus and having to quarantine in a hotel room as Chad lay unconscious in a hospital bed. So he probably got this long before he ever even went to the hospital to install the computer system. Yeah. Anyway, they say that at the end of the article, he did okay. not get it at the hospital. He yeah. had it when he went there. Right. And believes they both caught the virus in their home state of Maryland because Chad didn't start feeling feverish until March 5th, just a day after he traveled to Wisconsin for work. He went to an urgent care center, but wasn't tested for coronavirus. Instead, he was told he likely had the flu and was sent back to his hotel. Well, he did likely have the flu. Yeah. We feel that they're not really treating COVID on the onset, which is a big problem, um, said Chad's sister, Angie. He was told at a clinic, here's some medicine, go back to your hotel. 
Well, so they gave him some medicine. But I mean, that is a treatment for like, the flu. Go quarantine yourself. You've got a fever. Go quarantine. De- <laughs> Delayed testing, lack of testing, confusion about symptoms, and in some cases, an absence of symptoms have all proven to be major hurdles in fighting the novel coronavirus and quelling its ever rising death toll across the country. On March 8th, still suffering from a fever, Chad completed a COVID-19 screening checklist in St. Angie's Hospital emergency room, but he was still not tested. Quote, I was told by a nurse that it was because he hadn't traveled internationally. Medical staff assured him it was unlikely to be COVID-19, the disease caused by the novel coronavirus. And so what's crazy to me is, is that it, it doesn't, just because you test positive as you as symptoms first onset doesn't mean that your life would be saved. Yeah. It's not how diseases work. You know, it's like, um, you know, you have a, let, let's say for cancer, for instance, right. You have, you do have a higher probability of beating cancer if it's detected early, uh, because it hasn't grown to a late form of, you know, a late stage where, uh, treating it at that stage, you don't have much of a chance uh, because it's already progressed to What's, to it's progressed too much. And the, the virus is very different, much like the flu or anything else. It, even if you discover it early, it doesn't mean that there's any type of treatment for a virus um, because you can't kill a virus. Yeah, like you can be vaccinated against one. Your body can kill it with its antibodies. It's your white blood cells, T cells. Is, is what they are that go around and look for things that aren't normal. And it's like, ha, gotcha. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> so that just travels around your blood. Those things are just running around, you know, looking for things to kill. And, um, but we don't have like, you don't have antibiotics for a virus because those, those don't exist. That's not the way viruses work. Uh, viruses can only be destroyed by your human cells or they can be staved off by antiviral medication. Now, Typically what antiviral medication does helps is your it, body fight it. <laughs> well, yeah, it helps your body fight it by uh, boosting your immune system. And then also what they do is they also um, reduce the, uh, the receptors that viruses need to bind to. So the way viruses work is they have, they can't function on their own, right? They can't reproduce on their own or anything like that. They are basically parasitic and they have to have a host to bind to. So a virus will penetrate one of your cells and it'll use some of your DNA and, and some of your nucleus nucleus and everything that's going on in your cell. And it'll, it'll like be a partner with it. Hey, this I got, sounds a whole lot yeah. like how people contract socialism. Yeah, exactly. Honestly. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's like, Hey buddy, be... I'm going to move into your room. And, uh, once you get it, you can't, you can't really stave it off after that with only with your own mind. That's right. the only way that you can fight it off. It's the only it's way. A deadly virus that's been killing people for a long time. Right. And, and we still haven't gotten rid of it. And, and I say all of this to say there's no amount of early testing that would have done anything different from chat. Like they weren't going to put him on a ventilator sooner than when he actually needed the ventilator. Yeah. Like they intubated him when he needed to be intubated. He was already in the hospital. He, he was already sick. And when he was first sick, they were like, oh, it shouldn't be that bad. They were very optimistic. Like you don't have, you got hypertension, but you don't really have anything else. You're not at that high of risk. Like we're going to give you, they probably gave him, I don't know, probably some fluids and just made him comfortable or whatever. But then when his breathing started to decline and he had trouble breathing, that's when they intubated him. They wouldn't, they wouldn't intubate him any sooner. Yeah. It's not like, it's not like you test positive for coronavirus and then you get a ventilator. 
That's yeah. not how it works. Ventilators, worst case, last ditch effort. The very worst case. The first thing they do is they put you on oxygen. Like if you have trouble breathing, they put you on oxygen. If you're if your oxygen sat, your O2 saturation, uh, which they like to keep above 95%, uh, higher than that usually, they want to see 97, 98, 99%. If it starts to go below that, then they'll boost it up. And if they can't, if it keeps going down, then they'll boost it up. I think the max is four liters of oxygen. So they'll boost all the way up that. Well, if you still have trouble breathing after that, um, then that's when you get intubated. You know what's you don't, it's not like, Hey, I'm positive for COVID. Somebody hooked me up to a ventilator. That's not how it works. That's not what happens. I mean, how many of you have been intubated before? Have been on a ventilator? It's not comfortable. And almost everyone who's on a ventilator is, uh, you're sedated and you're paralyzed because they stick a tube down your throat, you know, into your lungs, into your lungs. It's a plastic tube. You can't swallow. You can't talk. There's nothing. And so you're usually sedated and asleep and you don't really know what's happening. And this machine is breathing for you because you can't breathe on your own. This is so ridiculous. You want to know what's even more frustrating about this? What would you say is the basic idea of this article? What, what feeling and emotion and opinion are you supposed to take from this? Our healthcare system failed Chad. Yeah. That's what it is. Testing. Obviously Trump screwed up the testing. Yep. We know that. Here's the deal. This guy got feverish on March 5th. That was eight days after the first person in the United States died from coronavirus. I looked it up at the time that this guy was sick. We were still like around 10 people out of the 330 million people in the United States had died from coronavirus. About 10,000 from the flu. So when this guy went to the doctor and they said he's likely to have the flu, we're now looking at this through the lens of, well, obviously this was a major problem. No, it wasn't obviously a major problem at this time. The first person had just died a week before this from the coronavirus, Mm -hmm. a week beforehand. And we're acting like, the doctors messed up. They didn't, they should have known it was coronavirus. They should have obviously known. I mean, look at how many people have died. That's not the world that we were in at that time. Like no one had died yet. 10 people had died at the time that this guy got sick. It was not emergency measures and assumption that he had coronavirus, which is what we have a lot right now. It was not assumption that he had coronavirus immediately. Most people that were coming in and still that come in and all last year that came in, came in just like this guy and they had the flu. Statistically, that's what they had was the flu because 50,000 people die from the flu every single year. Millions of people have the flu every single year and the doctor sees a dozen of them every single day. So when the guy comes in with flu-like symptoms in a world where only a few people have died from the coronavirus, he gets treated for the flu. That's what happens. Now you can look at it. This is your... back when Fauci saying it wasn't a big deal. Exactly. Yeah. It was before Trump was was xenophobic and, and all kinds of stuff. Okay. And this article was written yesterday, by the way. I know. April 22nd. They're literally talking about the guy being feverish on March 5th. I just looked it up. The first death in the United States was on February 26th. February only had 29 days in it this year. Okay. This was eight days apart from when the first person died. It was not obvious that this guy was about to die from the coronavirus. You're looking at it through your time machine lens of the situation that we're in right now, 
and you're viewing the past through what you know right now. That is hindsight doctoring and opinionating. And that's just, that's not going to work. And just like we said, the idea of this article is to just make sure that you are solidifying the belief that it is our healthcare system. It was our president's lack of whatever that caused this guy to die. And that is not the case. There are 48,000 very sad stories of people who died from the coronavirus. And every single one of them is very sad. Every one of them is very sad and we'll have 48,000 articles about how someone died from the coronavirus and quotes about how their family had to bury them in some kind of way. And that's what I was going to say. This is a good story. It's a really good story. We've been talking about trying to find stories. The left is amazing at pulling heartstrings to get you to think a certain way. Because when you hear this story and your emotional guard is down, which lets down your logical analysis guard and takes it away, then you're no longer capable of making any type of logical-based analysis on this story anymore at, at all, unless you're us and and probably people who listen to the show. And in all that's, re- that's in, about it. In all actuality, if you want to blame anyone for the lack of testing. <laughs> at this time <laughs> it would be the government it would be yeah. the government which now is stranglehold is is trump because now a government failure since trump is the president is a trump failure and the people on the left will take that as a trump failure failure not a failure of government itself being in control of things yeah. and that that's a big problem it's a really big problem because they're like oh if we had just had joe biden in there secretly barack obama um which we can talk about we secretly had Barack Obama in there um, under the guise of Joe Biden <laughs> and, and his VP, and his Michelle VP Obama. Michelle, you know, then we, you know, Chad would have lived. That's yeah. what they're trying. That's what they're trying to say because they can predict the future because like they already have medications put out to everyone for coronavirus on on March 5th already. That was already out there, obviously. For sure. No, yeah. uh, late March, they were they were ripping Trump apart for mentioning the hydroxychloroquine in his press conferences. What did they expect this guy would have had as a medication? So anyway, we're I at wanna, an hour. Charlie's got a call in 10 minutes. So. I do. I wanted to look up how many deaths there were from H1N1 uh, in America. 13,000. 13,000 yep. in America? In that one year. Uh, why weren't there no sad stories about how it's Obama's fault that those people didn't get tested enough fast enough for H1N1? I'm not sure. And the economy didn't shut down. And Why weren't we freaking out when there were uh, 10, 20 cases of H1N1 and shutting yeah. down the entire economy? Or when there were 1,000 or 200, uh, you know, or, or 2,000 deaths from H1N1, why weren't we shutting down the economy? And you know what's crazy is the the H1N1 affected children uh, and young and middle aged adults. I know it didn't affect old people as much. It was it was crazy. Yeah, it was it was much much more dangerous. I I assume it's still going around, but we're never we're never going to get those numbers. And another thing, a conspiracy corner, real quick to steal from Lines of Liberty, uh, conspiracy corner. A bunch of the coronavirus deaths you guys are seeing. They have not. They are not people who tested positive for coronavirus. Actually, that's not a conspiracy. The New York Times uh, released the story that New York was upfront putting down people as coronavirus deaths without testing to see if they had coronavirus. Coronavirus, and we're not going to know how many of these people actually died from the flu, because it's about the same death. We already have fifty thousand people a year die from the flu. 
already and you die in basically the same way from pneumonia from your lungs filling up with fluid and not and and drowning in, in your own lungs or infection or whatever happens at that at that point in time i don't know how many of these deaths are actually from the flu but i'm i'm betting you a lot of them are people who die from the flu who are now getting a box check saying that it was likely coronavirus and then they're now going down on numbers for coronavirus sorry to be such a conspiracy theorist but I truly just go down that conspiracy. Truly train, believe man. that, and we'll never know. The actual answer is we'll never know. So, guys, real quick on the uh, election update, real quick. I, I saw some other news today that is it is very likely we'll find out within seventy two hours now uh, whether or not Justin Amash is going to run for the Libertarian Party candidate, and they're looking at a Justin Amash um, uh, Sharp um, ticket. I would definitely Amash I, Sharp. I would. I like Larry Sharp for, for, a lot. Yeah, yeah. So that would be. That I wish be, Sharp would just run. Actually, as as president, yeah. I would vote for him. He did run for governor of New York mm-hmm. not that long ago. He got like eighteen percent of the vote. Yeah, it actually wasn't yeah. too too bad. Yeah. So he ran a ran a successful, I would say, pretty successful campaign as a libertarian. Yeah, <laughs> you know, so that'd be pretty interesting ticket. And then there is speculation. Of Michelle Obama being Joe Biden's VP pick, and that'll be very interesting if, to talk about. If Michelle Obama is Joe Biden's vice president pick, uh, he will win the election. Yes. I'm going to go ahead and say that. More than likely. Her positive rating is through the roof. She is the, I was hearing Ben Shapiro say she's like your, she's got the persona of like one of the daytime talk show people like Ellen Oprah. She's got the persona of like, like a that queen. kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And like she's her, Queen Elizabeth. The the positivity meter, especially among Democrats, but even there's a generally low negative rating for her, even among Republicans. It's generally low, except for hardcore hate Obama type Republicans. Yeah. Um so I don't even hate her. I, I don't yeah. I don't hate her. I dis I disagree with most of her policies. I don't have a strong hatred towards her. Uh, and the and that fact right there, just gonna say, if he does announce her as his VP, uh, they'll they'll win the election. I'm gonna go ahead and call that right now. I will eat my words. Yes. On camera. On I'll, camera. I'll come, type them up. Come November, the come the second week in November, whenever uh, after the election on the fr- Friday or on the Wednesday after the election, I will eat my words if if that is the ticket and they lose i will write them on a on a full piece of paper and i'll eat the entire piece of paper <laughs> i'm not going to pull this little b move like charlie did and eat the <laughs> smallest little piece of paper you could ever eat when yeah. he ate his words about what was it about mike bloomberg being yeah, that's the right. Uh, that's right the uh, the nominee yeah yeah so um i was wrong I'll Most of the time, I'm not wrong. On that one, yeah. I was wrong, and I decided to eat my words. Well, I, that's why I had to. That was a promise I made. That's why your Native American name is the person who knows slightly less about everything than your podcast co-host knows <laughs> about everything. It's a long Native American name, but you know how they did stuff. Yeah, you know, yeah. you know the thing. Yeah, long names. Yeah. So anyway. all that to say, it's going to be a very interesting year. So what y'all need to do is share the show with a friend. Tell your communist uncle. Tell your uh, your lovely Democratic friends. Tell your Republican friends. Tell anyone you got. Tell them about the show because we are going to be covering some of the most interesting things I think is going to be happening. 2020 has been a hell of a year so far. Mm. And this thing is shaping up to be a dandy, man. I already told you that earlier. <laughs> we got dandelions, dandles. Everything's dandy. Everything's going everywhere. Just like man. we were saying today, I don't think the stock market has hit its bottom. I think it yeah. hit a nice bounce point. Could be totally wrong on that. Um, I need to look at the chart again. I think it's going to hit 15 at least, uh, and it could hit 
could hit 12 or 13. Yeah. So it, it would be really bad. It's possible to be looking for opportunities around that market. Really good opportunities. So that would be uh, ridiculously good opportunities. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, share, I was just saying, share, share the show with a friend and leave us a rating and review. You know, those things, algorithms and stuff like that. You don't have to know what they mean to just do it. Uh, Maurice earlier in the chat said when we were talking about subscribing to the show, he said, just do it. So why don't you go ahead and Nike this thing, man? I don't care if you agree with Nike, if you boycotted him uh, for the whole capper, the whole capper Nick thing, but just do it. Just you know, do it. Kneel, a... kneel down and subscribe to this show. Okay. <laughs> Nike, just do yeah. it. All right, Nate, take us on out of here, man. Well, guys, like Charlie just told you, you guys all got to subscribe to this here podcast. Go to patreon.com slash Liberty if you want to take care of getting liberty out there to the people. We got a lot of people in here to hang out with us. They're good people, and I know them, and I love all of them. And they're in our Patreon. They're chatting with us right now chatting with us right now on the on the live stream and you can do that too for just a little as five dollars a month so go to patreon.com slash good morning liberty if you guys do all of those things we'll be right back here again tomorrow from nashville tennessee we'll be right back again tomorrow until then have a good day and a good morning liberty